Good afternoon, wonderful listeners. In this week's podcast, we're going to be covering video games. Video games are a very popular topic, but not just video games. Video games and the relationship with violence. So some people believe that video games cause violence. Some people believe that parents should be the ones that decide what the kids get to do. So they decide if my kid wants to play these violent video games, he can. And I should be able to control him from being violent anywhere else. So a lot of kids play video games. As many as 97% of U.S. kids aged between 12 and 17 play video games. And the video game industry is about $21.53 billion. Okay, So more than half of the top selling video games have violence in them. So that's a big industry and more than half of the top selling video games have violence. Now we've seen that some people like to blame violent video games for school shootings, bullying increases, and violence towards women, if that makes any sense. The critics argue that these games desensitize players to violence, reward players for stimulating violence, and teach children that violence is an acceptable way to resolve conflicts. Video game advocates contend that all this research doesn't make any sense at all. It's deeply flawed. And there's no actual relationship between video games and social violence. They say that it actually might be a safer outlet for aggressive and angry feelings. Now, I'm of the mind that if if you're a parent of a child, you can decide what they get to watch and play and stuff. If they're a crazy kid and you don't want them to play Call of Duty, then you don't let them play Call of Duty. If your kid's fine, straight A's, and he likes to go home, and after he's done with his homework, he likes to shoot some zombies, I don't see the problem with that. Okay. Sales of violent video games have significantly increased, while juvenile crime rates have significantly decreased. So how does that make sense? If we're obviously having juvenile crime rates that are going down, and... The sale of violent video games have gone up. So how is there a correlation there? And like I said, these studies, how, how can we trust, how can we even run a study like this that puts video games against violence? If you get some kids and you have them play video games and some might be violent, some won't be. But there's no saying there's a direct correlation there. So I think it's obvious, it's a no-brainer. The parents should be able to decide what their kids watch and listen to. That's the Common Sense Answer, and this has been the Jason Gates Podcast. Hey guys, it's Jason Gates here with the Jason Gates Podcast. And today, we're going to be talking about school uniforms. Okay, so traditionally, school uniforms are favored by private schools and institutions. But they are being adopted by U.S. public schools in increasing numbers. One in five U.S. public schools required students to wear uniforms during the 2013 through 2014 school year. That's up from one-eight in 2003 to 2004. So mandatory uniform policies in public schools are found more high. There's a lot more found in high-poverty areas. And if you think you want school uniforms, then you say that they make schools safer for students. They get a level level playing field because we all wear the same stuff, and it reduces so- socioeconomic disparities. 
and encourage children to focus on their studies instead of on their clothes. Now, opponents say that school uniforms infringe upon students' right to express their individuality, they have no positive effect on behavior and academic achievement, and emphasize the socioeconomic disparities they are intended to disguise. And one of the biggest arguments against, which I am against school uniforms, is it restricts your freedom of expression. Okay, the First Amendment gives us the ability to express ourselves, and how much of it do we check at the door of the school building? Obviously, we're already checking a lot. I don't think we need to add to that by saying, well, you have to wear the same thing as everybody else, and you can't express any difference from anybody else. And that same thing, they promote conformity over individuality. So, if you have a different idea, then why would you bring it out? Because when you go to school, you're the same as everybody else. You take the standard test, you wear the standard clothes, you're trying to be the same as everybody else. And I don't see how people think this would stop bullying. I mean, it's not like if, if I'm rich and I'm going to a high-poverty area that makes me wear a school uniform... And I'm going to find a way to be the top dog, and I would say this might even increase bullying. And well, a lot of argument, they say that they improve attendance, academic fairness, or exam results. This is not true. David L. Brunsma, Ph.D. professor of sociology at Virginia Polytechnic Institute and State University, he had a study that a sample of 10 graders found that there's no effects on how absent you are, behavioral problems like fights, suspensions, or substance abuse. Okay, so I think it's obvious that school uniforms have no function in making our schools better, and they just take away our First Amendment rights, and that's the common sense answer to school uniforms. Hey guys, it's Jason Gates here with the Jason Gates Podcast, and this week we're going to be talking about national anthem protests. So the current debate over kneeling or sitting or whatever and as protest during the National Anthem was was ignited by Colin Kaepernick in 2016. It has escalated quickly and it's a nationally divisive issue. San Francisco 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick first refused to stand during the Star Spangled Banner on August 26, 2016 to protest racial injustice and police brutality in the United States. Since then, many other professional football players, even high school athletes and professional athletes in other sports, have refused to stand for the national anthem. These protests have generated controversy and sparked a public conversation about the protesters' messages and how they've chosen to deliver them. Okay, so... The people that say that we should make these people stand are saying that if you don't stand, you're showing disrespect for the flag and for members of the armed forces. And I would actually go to the other side and say if you believe in what these people fight for, the ideals of freedom, liberty, and justice for everyone, refusing to stand for the national anthem is completely fine and justified. And you could argue that these members of the armed forces actually fought for your right to do just that. They fought for your right to say that you don't agree with how the government might be doing one thing. These other people will also say that it's an ineffective way and it's counterproductive in promoting the cause. And I could actually almost agree with that. But 
you also have to say that the only reason I'm doing this podcast is because of what he's done. Now, obviously, we got we've gotten away from the issues of racial profiling and police brutality, and that could be considered kind of productive. But it does shock people into paying attention to whatever you're saying. And it is our First Amendment right. It's peaceful protest. Now, it doesn't mean I don't think that these NFL owners should be able to fire players. It's their private property. And I think it's their right if they don't like what this player is doing. And any time on their, it's their job, they can be fired for having, not for just having these beliefs, but for putting it on everybody that's trying to watch the NFL, watch a football game. And it's bad for business in many aspects. You see all over Facebook, people are saying, boycott the NFL, blah, blah, blah. So I think everybody keep their rights. You can fire them if you want, and if you can protest if you like. And that's the common sense answer to the National Anthem protest. Good afternoon, guys. This is the Jason Gates Podcast, and this week we're going to be talking about minimum wage. So proponents, proponents of a higher minimum wage state that the current federal minimum wage of seven twenty-five per hour is too low for anyone to live on that a higher minimum wage will help create jobs and grow the economy, that the declining value of the minimum wage is one of the primary causes of wage inequality between low and middle income workers, and that a majority of Americans, including a slim majority of self-described conservatives, support increasing the minimum wage. Now opponents say that many businesses cannot afford to pay their workers more and will be forced to close, lay off workers, or reduce hiring. That increases have been shown to make it more difficult for low-skilled workers with little or no work experience to find jobs to become upwardly mobile, and that raising the minimum wage at the federal level does not take into account the regional cost of living variations where raising the minimum wage could hurt low-income communities in particular. My opinion is that we should let a free market decide the prices that are paid for labor, but this is probably too radical a view to oppose. So I will settle to say that we should keep the minimum wage where it is and not raise it. Firms faced with minimum wage laws often substitute skilled for unskilled labor. In a report for the Show Me Institute, labor economist David Newmark offers an illustrative example. So let's suppose that a job can be done by either three unskilled workers or two skilled workers. If the unskilled unskilled wage is um, $5 an hour and the skilled wage is $8 per hour, the firm will use unskilled labor and produce the output at a cost of $15. However, if we impose a minimum wage to $6 an hour, the firm will instead use two skilled workers and produce for $16 as opposed to the $18 cost of using unskilled workers. Now, in the official data, this shows up as a small job loss, in this case only one job. But in this case we see an increase in average wages to $8 per hour in spite of the fact that the least skilled workers are now unemployed. So advocates of the higher minimum wages are often motivated by the purest of concerns for the poor. However, the minimum wage has been put down by many economists for many years because it hurts precisely the people who desperately need help. These self-styled friends of the poor are unrelenting in their advocacy of a higher minimum wage. But with friends like these, the poor do not need enemies. These higher minimum wage laws hurt them. That is why I think we shouldn't raise the minimum wage. Thanks for listening and see you next week.
Good morning, folks. It's Jason Gates here with the Jason Gates Podcast. Today, we're going to talk about health insurance here in the United States, how it works or doesn't work, and some history in the idea of insurance and how Americans are changing their views on government-ran health care. What is insurance? Insurance is a contract between an individual, the policyholder, and an insurance company. This contract provides that the insurance company will cover some portion of a policyholder's loss as long as the policyholder meets certain conditions stipulated in the insurance contract. The policyholder pays a premium to obtain insurance coverage. If the policyholder experiences a loss, such as a car accident or a house fire, the policyholder files a claim for reimbursement with the insurance company. The policyholder will pay a deductible to cover part of the loss, and the insurance company will pay the rest. So the premise of insurance is a large group of people pulling their wrists together so that if anything bad does happen, the insurance company can afford to cover the cost of the minority of people with bad luck with the majority of the people experiencing no problems and paying just in case. Insurance of all kinds is still a business with two parties agreeing on terms where they both benefit. This changes when you look at things like the Affordable Care Act, pushed into law under the name Obamacare. This changes the basic rules of insurance. The idea behind it is that it is unfair for people to either not be able to get healthcare in a civilized culture like ours, and it is also wrong for us to charge these people with pre-existing conditions more, or to deny them services no matter how costly. So these people come from a moral high ground, or so they think. So an example of pre-existing condition could be cancer, a horrible thing that could cost many millions of dollars to try to treat. Now it is understandable for a person who has been paying in the insurance pool for years and then has a bad thing happen to them, it makes sense that they can take out to try and treat themselves if they have been paying in, the, paying in while weighing the risk of not having no health insurance and bad things happening and the risk of paying health insurance and never having to, being able to take any out. And they decided they would pay in and if anything bad ever did happen, they would have help. And if nothing bad ever happened, then the money they put in could be used to pay for the people who did have the bad luck. But instead, we have forced insurance companies to accept those with pre-existing conditions under Obamacare. So you can go 15 years with nothing bad happening and you don't have health insurance. But when something bad does happen, you can go to the insurance company and force them to take you in. And they can't even charge you more. Even though you are guaranteed to cost them money. The government has changed the basic rules of insurance in order to make things fair. But this has ended up screwing over the majority of Americans with higher costs and worse insurance. If we really want to make things fair, then we need to get stupid government rules out of private transactions and have some common sense laws. But that's not what we have now, and that needs to change. This is the Jason Gates Podcast, and thanks for listening. My name is Jason Gates, and this is the Jason Gates Podcast. In this podcast, we will cover controversial issues, and I will give you both sides of the argument. Then I will tell you which side I believe is the right side, and will back it up with facts and my philosophy. I come from a Republican family, so I tend to lean that way, but I would identify as a libertarian with a strong belief that the government is really good at messing things up, and that's about it. I believe that their function should be to protect individual rights, and they're going to be so big and overreaching that they actually do the exact opposite. My philosophy can be summed up by saying that you shouldn't hurt people or take their stuff. The government should be there to help in situations where individuals are being physically hurt or people are taking their stuff. Now the government has turned into something that actually hurts other people and takes other people's stuff. This is the exact opposite of what they should be doing in my opinion. 
Over the course of these podcasts, I will tell you about issues that we are having in the world, but will tell you how I think we could at least begin to solve these problems from a standpoint of a liberty-loving American. Like I said, I believe we shouldn't hurt people. This seems simple enough, and no decent person will hurt another unless the action was provoked or in some way justified. Free people just want to be left alone not hassled or harmed by someone else with an agenda or designs over their life and property. We would certainly strike back if and when our physical well-being is threatened, if our family, our community, or our country were attacked. But we shouldn't hurt other people unless it is in self-defense or in the defense of another against unchecked aggression. Libertarian philosophers call this the non-aggression principle. Don't start a fight, but always be prepared, if absolutely necessary, to finish a fight unjustly instigated by someone else. We all agree that the first legitimate role of government is to force is to protect the lives of individual citizens, but things get more complicated when it comes to defending against enemies foreign and domestic. In his 1796 farewell address, George Washington warned Americans not to entangle our peace and prosperity in the tolls of foreign ambitions, interests, and rivalries. It is our true policy to steer clear of permanent alliances with any portion of the foreign world, he said. Now, George Washington was not an isolationist, but I think that he had had a sound understanding of the non-aggression principle, meaning that we should only declare war on nations demonstrably seeking to do us harm. The men and women who volunteer for our military should not be put in harm's way by their commander-in-chief without a clear and just purpose, without a plan, or without an endgame. This is just common sense. I think that it is clear that we have gotten away from this common sense way of seeing things. Looking around the world, we can see U.S. troops stationed in other countries. 4,000 to 6,000 in Iraq and all over the world. Now, I think I want to bring common sense to these arguments, and that's what I'm going to do over the course of these podcasts. Thanks for listening.